Hello, YA fantasy fans. My name's Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. You've been listening to Shadows Over London by Christian Claver, which Kirkus Reviews describes as an enchanting and enthralling series opener. Today, we have the author with us here for a virtual interview, and Christian, I'm so excited to get chatting with you. Thank you so much for being here. Me too. Thanks for having me. So we always start with the authors telling us a little bit about themselves. Uh, okay. Uh, I started out with a career in books uh, and then, uh, you know, lots of different uh, bookstores, including Borders, which was big here in, here in Michigan. And, uh, and then uh, some bartending and then eventually uh, migrated to IT for the last 20 years. Uh, and that's worked out pretty well for me. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Kung Fu, uh, the, the series and the art. Um, I'm a, I'm a big reader, not surprisingly, and, and been a science fiction fantasy geek for a long time. Um, I've got a daughter, which will probably figure prominently in this, uh, interview because she had a lot of influence on these, uh, who is now with her, uh, masters in library, library, uh, library science, uh, and is 27. Yeah. 28, 28 in a, in a month. <laughs> Well, good for her. That's amazing. That's so fun. Do you practice Kung Fu yourself? I did. I did a lot. Um, I'm a bit older now, so I've definitely slowed down. It's more Tai Chi and less, uh, you know, Penjack Silat or Jeet Kune Do or things like that that I started with. Uh, but started as a kid with, you know, Taekwondo and just loved it. Wow, that is so fun. And now you said you're in IT, which is so funny because you're not the first author I've talked to who's also in IT. So what made you choose to make that transition or did you always start in it what was your what's your it background i guess i i didn't really have other than uh borders needed somebody uh, which was a uh, if you're not familiar with the chain it's it was a giant bookstore that they're out of business now but um gosh i haven't heard they that basically name in so long. needed somebody willing right it's been a while uh somebody willing to handle the computer stuff and after doing a little bit of the computer stuff uh for borders then after uh just needed a little more money and it did it oh amazing <laughs> so borders is a lovely lovely profession but you know i started making uh 590 an hour and you know it didn't get too much bigger than that so yeah hard to live on that that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, going back to your book, which I'm very excited to get into with you, what is your connection to fantasy adventure? You know, you've got this human fairy war that's super fascinating. What made you choose this genre? What's your connection to fantasy? Oh, I've always been a heavy fantasy and science fiction reader, uh, particularly fantasy. Um since that's why I got into books, you know, so that I could work the science fiction section and, you know, talk to people about books all day, uh, which is which is wonderful. Um, I mean, ever since, uh, you know, Narnia, Lord of the Rings, you know, these are the things that, you know, I read when I was young uh, and then I got my daughter into later. So uh, I've always been been connected to fantasy. Oh, that's amazing. That's so cool. You mentioned your daughter and how she inspired, I assume, justice in your book, but... I'm sure personality traits kind of transfer to different characters as well. Um, 
what was your inspiration for all of the characters? Did you pull a lot from your normal life? A little bit. There's a there's a mashing of things in there. Um, this started. Uh, I had been writing different things, and uh, but also this is when my daughter was. I want to say around five or six, seven area. Um, we went through um, the Chronicles of Narnia, um, which are you know a great read for kids. Um, and uh but they do a, a couple weird things where um you know you've got peter lucy edmund susan you know in book one and then those characters get kind of cast off by book three um and she was very upset with that so uh w i started writing this in response to that we wanted more narnia uh and we wanted more narnia that would keep a, a consistent cast all the way through so uh, this actually started uh, with Katie in mind, and um, so Justice is definitely a, a Katie transplant um, in a lot of different ways. But also, I grew up, uh, we were the Brady Bunch. My parents got separated, uh, I want to say around 10 or 11, and then my dad married my best friend's mom who lived across the street. So all of a sudden, we're the Brady Bunch. We only had five instead of six, but, you know, boom, all of a sudden we had a whole bunch of kids living together. Um, and that makes an interesting family dynamic, uh, both good and bad. And, uh, one, and the other secret influence is, uh, Zelazny's, uh, Chronicles of Amber, which were another big favorite of mine for a long, long time. Um, and they have a big sprawling family that's kind of at odds with each other. And I thought, well, I've got a big giant sprawling family, you know, because, uh, my mom remarried, his dad remarried, you know, so there's all these connections. And I think that's a lot more common now than it used to be. But at the time, it seemed very unusual. And I felt like I had uh, a lot to say about a weird, dysfunctional, partway glued together family, um, you know, that, 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 that translated to this, uh, you know, quite a bit. So uh, it, it was a lot of fun to write. Uh, the whole premise of the book, which I'm sure we'll get to, is that uh, the fairy come to England and invade, uh, and Justice finds out that her family is on both sides of the war. So you've got, you know, some very serious conflict between, uh, you know, mom and dad uh, that uh, I feel a lot of divorced kids, you know, will, will it'll feel very normal, right, uh, or very natural, it's a thing I think a lot of people, you know, think about. Well, that's so interesting that you bring that up because obviously, well, I wanted to, I'd wanted to ask you about the family dynamics and why you chose to make them incredibly complicated in this book. And everybody I think can relate to having at least to some degree, a complicated family situation. But I was wondering what your choices were behind that. So it's so interesting that you drew from so much of your personal life from that. That's so I don't want to say cool because that feels insensitive, but but it, it's interesting that that you were able to pull from that and in informing this. And I totally see what you mean about kind of having that Chronicles of Narnia type feel, uh, where it's got the the big family and they're all kind of in this together, even if they're all kind of on their own adventure as well. So I I see that a lot. I'm so curious as to well. What brought you to this story specifically? You know, you've got this family dynamic, which you said a lot of kids are are 
you wanted to be able to relate to with divorced parents. Um, but I feel like even I'm someone who my parents are still together and I was able to relate to the complicated family dynamic. And it just seems like you were able to bring here. Here's the question. Here's the question. Here's the question game. (laughs) You were able to bring a lot of different dynamics together. You were able to bring a lot of different topics together. You've got the complicated family. You've got the, the human fairy conflict and then just being a teenager and growing up in this interesting world what made you choose all of these different topics and bringing them together? Well, it didn't happen all at once. Uh, this book got revised a lot, more than any other book I've ever written, um, over a period of, oh God, I want to say almost 15 years um, between when I started it and when I, and I actually uh, sold this once and on a deal that fell through. So there were some revisions that then got pulled back. So it went through a couple uh, permutations, including um, there are several sisters that didn't make the final cut. There's a couple brothers that didn't make a final cut. There's a couple people that got mashed together. Um, Mr. Sands, for instance, is actually a composite of three different characters in the original draft. Um, it went through a lot of revisions. Um, and a lot of times, some of the things just sort of, um, a lot of it for sake of the story. Like you start out with the original idea, you, you write some things and then you go, Oh, well that does, like, for instance, I had just many more sisters than, um, than I had figured out. You know, <laughs> and and part of when I figured out certain characters was like, oh, she doesn't seem to have anything to do, you know. So maybe and and you know, uh, more characters got mashed together, and a couple characters sort of sprung out of the woodwork. Um, uh, there are some. You very quickly find out that Justice has in the book that Justice has more sisters than she realized. So a lot of those, a couple of those sisters disappeared from book one only to resurface uh, as the story brought them back in. Um, So uh, it went through a lot of revisions and a lot of times I'd go through, like Justice was always very, very clear to me. I knew what she wanted. I had Katie to to base it on. Uh, Although, of course, some of those other things uh, changed as Katie grew up. You know, and I kept tinkering with the book, and and now Katie's, you know, uh, older, and you know has noticed boys, and you know that changed the flavor of the book. Uh, so it actually started out with a much younger Katie, and then Justice got older and older as revisions went through. Wow! Oh, that's so neat. So, so that brings that, up a couple that questions. A lot. Yeah. Well, how long did it take you then from? here is this idea, I'm going to start writing it down, to now we have this finished book that I'm ready to send to Cam to a publisher. Uh, how, long did, how long did that take for you to be able to watch your daughter grow up and, and work with all those revisions? Uh, it was the first book I started um, and maybe the sixth that I finished um, because I had ideas and then uh, I had what I thought was a sale, but I had to wait. You know, I couldn't write book two. I couldn't write book three yet because I'm, I'm working with an editor. Uh, and then the sale fell through. Um, uh, the, the, the publisher essentially went under. And so 
there was a lot of a uh, time when it was in a holding pattern or a lot of things where this agent asked me to do this or this agent asked me to do that. Um, it was sort of a volatile part of my career. Uh, so off and on again for 15 plus years, I think, before I finally, I, I mean, although that's kind of not true for the first half of the book. Like the first half of the book was pretty solid right from the get go. Uh, I don't think chapter one changed in 20 years, you know, because I had a very clear idea of what I wanted there. Um, whereas some of the other chapters and certainly, uh, my outlines for books two and three, which were always planned, but certainly not as flushed out as a full draft, uh, you know, evolved and changed as, as things went. Sure. Yeah. That's so interesting. 15 years. That is really cool. And then my other question based on what you had said before was that justice started with a lot more siblings. And obviously, as you said, we've got the the kind of notion of that she has more siblings than she realizes in this first book. But what, how many did she start? How many in your original draft of the story did she have? I want to say there were three other sisters, one other brother and a couple of family friends that are basically now melded into other people. Wow. Okay. So and you said other sisters and other brothers. So that's a big family. <laughs> it was big. Yeah, it was huge. You know, and, and the final result is is plenty big enough, which is a whole. Sure. Yeah, it's a big family you know, as it is. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so, you know, seven's plenty. I didn't need ten. You know, so. <laughs> but. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's very cool. So, um. You had talked a little bit about other books that you'd written before, and you and I were talking before the interview about how your research in writing those books helped you with your research for this. So can you talk a little bit about that research that you've done and, and maybe even the other books that you had written and, and what made you think of those? My, uh, my other series, and I think uh, really ought to have one handy, um... I have a uh, series with uh, Sherlock Holmes and Dracula. Um, so, as you can imagine, a lot of overlapping um, geography, you know, with, with people bouncing around London. Um, although not as much by the end as you would have expected. This is inspired a little bit by Penny Dreadful. Um, the second one is coming out in a, in a month. But uh, I ended up using Dracula. Sherlock Holmes, Jekyll and Hyde, um, Jack the Ripper, uh, Dorian Gray is featured in book two, or three. Um, so I, I really was inspired by some things like uh, Penny Dreadful and um, Leave Extraordinary Gentlemen, as well as thorough, there's a whole slew. If you if you go to Amazon or or Google and type in Sherlock Holmes Dracula, you wouldn't believe how many hits you got. Um, and a lot of them are books that I loved. Uh, Fred Saberhagen's got one that's fun. Uh, Lauren Esselman, who's a big mystery writer here in um, in Michigan in the Detroit area, uh, and and an author I'm a big fan of. He, he mostly mystery, but uh, he did a Sherlock Holmes uh dracula combination that that was really quite excellent um there's even uh nicholas meyer who directed a couple star treks uh did one with uh uh holmes and sigmund freud so there's a lot of of 
you know, I didn't invent that idea, but there's a lot out there. Uh, and some of it was better. They all gave me ideas. And so I had to, I had to write that. That was a lot of fun. That sounds like a lot of fun. Um, although it didn't end up overlapping. There's a distinction between the two because in the Sherlock Holmes world, there really is no magic. There's mad science, but no, whereas the fairy series is of course all about magic coming in and, and taking over, uh, taking over London in a very real uh, and physical way. So one of the fun things about writing that London in Shadows Over London, uh, matter of fact, the whole title refers to a giant tree that, that forms in London that is both actually overshadowing London, but also part of the invasion that's symbolically overshadowing London. Uh, so I tore any London that Sherlock Holmes would recognize apart pretty quickly uh, with magic, which is a thing that doesn't exist in Sherlock Holmes' world. So they, they diverged a lot. Um, but when you're talking, you know, basic geography of like, um, you know, Hyde Park is, how far is that from, you know, uh, from, um, 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 the, the prison, for instance, that Henry gets locked up in, you know, the, a lot of the geography is the same. Uh, and, and that was a lot of fun. Matter of fact, for the longest time, I had a giant map of London on my wall, um, just so I could, you know, think about it and look at it. So particularly, um, it got written out a little bit in, um, in the revisions, but there's a lot of, uh, sea geography when justice takes to sea in the second book, um, you know, the, the, the Thames itself and the, the outlet into the various, you know, parts of the coast. Um, there was a lot I wanted to know there. Uh, again, that's a geography that gets taken over by the fairy pretty quickly. So by books two and three, um, the real geography was less important to me. But uh, it, it's certainly something you wanted to know going in, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, that's really cool. And I loved how you mentioned that, uh, you know, The Shadows Over London. It's it's a nice title. It kind of seems a little ominous. But then there are literal shadows overcasting London. And I thought that was very clever as I read the book and, and began to understand that uh, th that that was what you were doing. And of course, uh, immediately as soon as I recognized that there was a character named Justice and how important it was, like that they were just at sea and how their lives at sea play out, uh, I saw the title Justice at Sea and thought, oh, that's very clever as well. <laughs> so I really appreciated the... <laughs> I guess you could say double entendres of the of the titles, how they had the double meanings. I thought that was really, really fun. Um, so our last interview... I like having fun with things wherever I can. Oh, cool. Yeah. I, I, I can imagine. <laughs> uh, I'm the same way. So that kind of reminds me of something that we talked about in our last interview with Colin. And Colin had said something that Joe Crawford had also mentioned, and now I'm feeling like this is a question I want to start incorporating into these interviews because it was just so funny to me that they both referred to this, uh, but they both referred to themselves as uh, flying by the seat of their pants in uh, the way that they wrote in their writing styles. And, and 
Colin Holmes specifically mentioned that he's a pantser. That's what he <laughs> called himself. So I'm curious, are you more of a, a planner and someone who's got your outline and you're very organized or are you more of a pantser? Just the story's dictating to you how it wants to be told. It changed. Um, over the course of this series, I started out as more of a pantser um, and less of a plotter. Uh, and by the time the series was done, I, I am now a fairly um, rabid plotter. The whole I could go for like an hour on the whole course of outlining your book because there's interesting things to think about. You know, you see a lot of outlines or uh, a lot of outlines I wrote for, you know, this and for other things. Um, they don't always focus on all the right things. You know, you're so worried about justice goes here, justice goes here, justice accomplishes this thing, you know, that it's easy to leave out um, the motivations. It's easy to leave out uh, imagery and symbolism, you know, or things that uh, so a lot of times I'll, in my first drafts, I would write, um, I would write the book and the things would happen. And then only, as an afterthought, would I notice certain symbols and then, you know, that would come out uh, in the draft. Um, there's a great book by Stephen King. Uh, nobody should use this method, but everybody should read this book. Um, uh, just called On Writing, where he's like the furthest end of Pantser. You know, he doesn't know how he's going to get there. He just writes and he just writes and he just writes. Uh, and then he puts it away for a month and he comes back and uh, and he reads it and then discovers what his themes are. Cause you know, he didn't know while he was writing it, he had to figure it out. Um, so more and more as I write, um, you get to be a better writer, but I think a biggie was you get to be a better plotter. And as you plot more and better, you get less revisions. Like you, you don't have to get to, you know, fourth revision for start looking at symbolism or theme or, or what does the character want? And a lot of this is background stuff, right? You know, you're. I, I was excited about Justice being on a ship. It's a ship. It's dragons. I'm excited. You know, but behind all that action, you know, uh, I knew why Justice was there where she was at all times. A lot of things like, why is Faith there? Why is Henry there? What does Father really want? And why is he playing this? Or the bad guys? What do they really want? You know, uh, so a lot of that stuff and just what do you want to see when you think about the book, you know, is it about, are you talking to dragons? Are you flying on a ship? Like, you know, if you were doing the movie poster, what would be on that movie poster? Uh, I feel like my outlines include a lot more of that. I, I have a better idea of what should be in the outline, um, without putting in too much detail. I think when I started, I had a whole lot of, she needs to do this in chapter two because of 70 pages of, of history. When the history isn't important then, the history, you know, put the history is important later, you know, so you put it in the outline later, you don't put it in there. That's so interesting. That's a really um, cool way to do it. And it's so funny to me that you kind of did the opposite of what I would have expected or what I've been hearing from other authors too, where you started off as, all right, let's just see where this goes. And then as you got more into it, oh no, wait, I'm going to plan ahead and do this. So what made you make that change? Uh, too many revisions for Shadows Over London. 
Um, if I had planned better, <laughs> you know, I would have known how many sisters I need right from the start. You know, um, I, I so uh, I think Shadows Over London is definitely um, where I learned. I learned writing Shadows Over London how I should better have planned Justice at Sea. I wrote, I written an outline, and the other thing I do a lot is I re-outline. Uh, every time I get stuck, I redo the outline. So um, the outline often changes. And the funny thing is, by the time you get done with the book, a lot of times I'll look back at that outline and go, wow, I didn't do that, and that's good. I didn't do that, and that's good. Like, the outline is hilariously wrong by the time you're done, you know? <laughs> so um, sometimes with some books. Uh, and, and Justice did that to me a lot because it, it got um, it got so big. You know, I had a fair idea of, of Justice and the family, but there's also, they affect a lot of things. They have a, a, a cataclysmic effect on not only London, but all of Ferry. And getting all those repercussions in order um, took a lot of planning. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Wow. That's so interesting. So I feel like I say interesting 500 times per interview because I'm always just so fascinated by <laughs> the information that you guys share with me. So how did then that re affect your revision process as you went into Justice at Sea? Did you find that it helped? You didn't have to make as many changes as you went through because you did say that the outline does change over time. So did that help at all your revision process? It did help. It helped a lot. Um, I think Shadows Over London, the first part, like I said, I had a pretty clear idea of the first part, like the middle of the book and the end of that book, or where it's going to end. The first, I think the first revision of Shadows Over London actually included half of the events from Justice at Sea. By the time I went back and revised, it grew and it grew and it grew, and suddenly it became so big that half the book needed to get bumped over to the next book. Um, but by contrast, I think um, Armada's in the Mist, which is the third book, which comes out in December. Um, God, I want to say one or two major revisions... Like, the details, I'd gotten better at outlining, plus I had the first two books, you know, in my head and in the, in the, in the hopper. Um, so I think that whole book might have taken me a year to do, rather than the 20 years the first one took. So, you know, uh, it definitely helped. I mean, it also helps that uh, with any... You know, you've got the beginning and the end. Usually with, with every book for me, and I think this is true of a lot of authors, um, you got this clear idea of the beginning. you got visions, and you're pretty sure you know where they want to end up. So you got some idea of the ending, and then how you get from A to B is is where the middle of the book is like the hardest part, where you, it's it, the easiest to get lost. And then that turned out to be true for the series, you know, the middle book is also the easiest place to get lost, you know, because you're still bringing in more threads and you're not tying any of those threads up. Whereas book three, you tie up threads, you go, oh, wow, that little mini story within the story, that's all done. 
like my cognitive load got lighter and lighter as I fin you went through that book. Um, and I'm, it, it kind of everything boiled back down to by the end of the book, I really just had to worry about justice and faith and Henry again, as opposed to, you know, uh, all the, the myriad characters, you know, like in the second book, there's this misfit crew that gets introduced and they've all got their stories, but a lot of those wrap up before the end of Armadas in the Mist. So it suddenly gets way less complicated and your vision is so clear uh, and you have to figure out less and it's just so much faster. That's so, yeah, that's, so, that makes a lot of sense. That does sound like then having an outline and having an idea of the beginning and even if not so much the middle, but the ending sounds like it was really helpful. So you definitely strike yeah. me then as someone who pays a lot of attention to lore, especially because in your other book, you had all of those different things that already existed uh, coming together and playing out in a new way. You had the Dracula, Sherlock Holmes mashup kind of thing, which is so fun to me. So you must be someone then who really pays attention to the history of things and, and making sure that all of the loose ends, as you said, are tied up. And I know one thing that I really appreciated about your book is nothing ever felt like you made a point and then that point just hung over our heads forever even if it was okay I'm excited to learn how this portion of it wraps up in the next book or in the third book or whatever that may be I always felt like you never do you know when you watch a show and someone makes a statement that's like just a complete contradiction to something that someone else had said episodes before I did not feel like you did that is kind of what I'm trying to say so I really appreciate that as an audience member. And it seems like that's something that's very important to you is making sure that it stays consistent. One of the things I had to do for, um, for justice, uh, and the lore is a great way to look at it. So for justice, there are so many stories about the fairy and I didn't want to just include England. You know, my idea was that the fairy of the world had gotten basically thrust off of earth by modern, you know, by, by Victorian modern society. Um, so without necessarily calling out to the mythology of Wales or Norse mythology or all those things, I wanted to have a feel that the fairy both generated and encapsulated all that lore um, without having... Like, this is all background. There's no chapter where you have to learn about Norse mythology or, or, or anything like that. But in the first couple drafts there were, and you know, and that all got cut. Um, but I wanted that research to inform the story so that even if the names are a little bit different, they all feel informed by um, particularly the, the Welsh mythology. Um, the Mabinogian is a, uh, is a, is a Welsh tale where... Um, uh, a, a man comes and he uh, encounters a fairy king, offends him, and then ends up having to go back and live in fairy, which also happens to to Dad in this book. Like that, that was another inspiration. There were so many things that mashed together, um, but I I wanted that feel of of fairy mythology to be both varied and seem to be internally consistent. Um, you know, one of the things uh, I. I love YA, 
but sometimes it doesn't have room for a whole lot of world building. Like YA wants a fast pace. So to be able to like squeeze in world building without using too many words or slowing anything down, you know, that's that's the the task of, you know, like 17 million hours of revisions. You know, to try to try and get that feel right, which usually end up building a ton and then going, okay, now I cut everything down. Right. Wow. Okay. So all of that kind of reminds me of a question that I think I might have asked earlier, but then I glazed over myself about your research, the kind of research you had to do to inform all of these stories, because you'd mentioned, I think that was why I glazed over. It was because you'd mentioned to me before we started recording that uh, you did a lot of London-based research in your Sherlock Holmes Dracula book that helped so that you didn't have to do as much London-based research in this series. So I would love to hear more about the kind of research that you did. And you said Welsh, Welsh mythology and things like that also played a factor. I would, yeah, I, I'm so curious as to what your process was there. A ton of research. And it actually went in the other direction. I did um, a lot of London research for shadows that then helped me when I started doing Sherlock Holmes later. Um, but with Sherlock Holmes Dracula, the lore is essentially the works of Stoker and the works of Doyle. You know, there's a lot of things in which um, Doyle and Stoker aren't portraying a real, the real world in London. There's, there's some ways in which they diverge, you know, so I'm, I'm, in keeping with Doyle more than I'm in keeping with reality. As opposed to with Justice, the fairy come in and take over so uh, early in the series. You know, one of the things I'm very excited about and very proud of is when I say that, you know, most people expect when I say that uh, fairy is attempting to invade England that, uh, that they won't succeed. And of course, fairy invade and take over England very early in the series, you know, so uh, it's happening. And the, the occupation, the magical occupation of London, uh, I think spawned, I don't, at least a uh, hundred pages that got cut just cause that just seems like an intro. I was so fascinated with that idea. And, uh, and so, yeah, a lot of, of, of research about both real London and, you know the the fantasies that you'll be you'll you'll feel um for instance the wild hunt has its own mythology that you know uh spans you know England Germany you know and, and everywhere in between um it, it's that one's kind of amazing you can you can spend you know a whole week going through different versions of wild hunt stories uh, and, and obviously I'm a huge mythology fan anyway. There's a, there's a book called Parallel Myths that all they do is compare various different stories and how they're the same across so many different cultures, which is always a fascinating idea, right? You know, all the, you know, what makes this wild hunt different, you know, in Norway uh, as opposed to England. And yet what, what remains the same throughout all the stories you know, uh, th there's so much there, you know, I feel like, uh, I both have done and would like to do, uh, some kind of, you know, masters in, in folklore, because even as much as I feel like I've read, I've just 
touched there's so much there i've just dipped i've just dipped my toe like there's so much information and different stories and ideas that uh that all reflect the culture you know both the individual cultures that they happened in uh, but also just, you know, one of the reasons you get so many reoccurring themes in different mythology is because it's just reoccurring themes to being human, uh, which, of course, leaked its way into Shadows. You know, there are a lot of people, uh, a lot of characters in the book that feel the fairy are not human. And by the end of the book, there are a lot of people that feel differently by that, um, which was a lot of fun to do. Yeah. No, that does sound like a lot of fun. That's very cool. So I'm just going to shift gears a little bit just because you had mentioned something earlier in regards to always knowing that Justice was going to be your main character. And, and obviously she was based off of your daughter and and how you just knew the personality traits that she was going to possess based on what you had already experienced in your life and, and, and watching your daughter. Uh, and so you had mentioned that earlier and I want to kind of shift gears and go back to that because I'm so curious as to what made you choose her standing in the family. You know, she was this middle child and she's kind of watching all of these things go down uh, with other members of her family. What made you choose to tell the story through that lens rather than making her the oldest and responsible for her siblings or, you know, the youngest and, and watching all of the madness ensue and and being a little bit like, oh, what's going on with my siblings? A little bit less than the no, I guess. Actually, um, it happened in the other direction. I figured out Justice. I had no idea where she was going to be placed in the order of siblings. Um, tried a couple siblings. Uh, I started with some of my own siblings, you know, because uh, that's a... Uh, you know, a big shorthand, right? Like you, uh, you're like, okay, well, I've got a brother. I'll try him. No, he doesn't work. I need him to be meaner. Okay. Well, I need him to be shorter. I need him to be taller. I need him to be, you know, a hundred other things, you know? So it's kind of like you've replaced him, you know, that old joke about this is a 20 year old hammer. I've replaced the handle 17 times and the, the head 17 times, but it's 20 year old. So a, a lot of times I'll start with something, try it out and then, you know, rip it out and put something else in or, you know, change it a little until it no longer resembles. So what happened was I made a bunch of siblings. I think, for instance, Faith started out younger than Justice. And then I decided I liked the um, the problem Justice has at the beginning of the book where Faith won't talk to her anymore because Faith is is kind of in mom's camp where Justice has always been in dad's camp. Uh, and that conflict worked better with Faith being older. So the story kind of shaped everybody around Justice. You know, Justice landed, boom, you know, she's my center of the universe, and then I just sort of drape things around her. Um, and and, and each, mostly all the characters ended up older than Justice because I liked the idea of... Um, Nobody expected her to take over. You know, she ends up taking over, you know, father's work, which is the defense of England from the fairy because only he understands it. But, you know, she's got older brothers. She's got older sisters. So I, I like the, the underdog aspect of, of her taking over. But uh, Henry ended up being younger because I wanted somebody for justice to take care of that wasn't as surprising 
you know, um, although he changed, it ended up, he ends up getting um, pulled away where they're not in contact for a big chunk of the book. So the story ended up changing several of the characters. Faith in particular, I had the hardest time getting a handle on her because the first revision, she just came out too much like Justice. And I'm like, well, that's not how sisters work. You know, um, you know, I, I remember so I'm the oldest of, of my family. And I remember, but even so, you know, I remember my brother start picking up soccer and I'm like, well, soccer would be cool, but that's his thing. Like you want your own thing, right? When you're part of a big family. Um, so everybody being little cones of each other just didn't feel realistic at all. So uh, I had to take and redo faith, I think, more than any other character in there. Um, yeah, so um, justice first and then the story and then sort of the rest of the siblings got uh, morphed around that. Yeah, that's very neat. Well, that's that answers that question. Um, before we <laughs> uh, kind of wrap up, although we have a little bit of time, but I did want to have a few questions that I asked you just towards the end here. So, I mean, you've told us a little bit about what to expect with Justice at Sea, and and we've gotten a few, I don't think anything too spoilery from uh, Shadows Over London or Justice at Sea, but what can we look forward to in the third book in the trilogy what would you like to share with us about the books that the people who are listening haven't read yet uh what can you share with us uh so bigger and more epic is what happens in in the last book uh armada's in the mist and it it kind of uh i think it sneaks in on the reader partly because it kind of snuck in on me um you get your original plan and then the things that Justice does ended up having so many repercussions that I did not anticipate um, throughout both worlds um, that I kind of sneak in like an epic Lord of the Rings scope story. You know, it starts very small. It's this, it's this family and they discover and they discover and they discover you know, not only do the fairy exist, but here's the world and here's the people and, and they're a part of this and dad's a part of this. And then dad's got this, you know, giant history. Mom's got this giant history and all these things had all these ramifications. Um, it gets it gets big. It gets, you know, gods, dragons, battles at sea, um, you know, epic. It, it, it got it got huge. And that was so much fun for me. Uh, but also challenging to try and, you know, encapsulate all that stuff. You know, in particular, um, there's a dragon that just took over. Um, you know, the, I, I imagine the dragon as being a, a minor, we meet this dragon, it's terrifying, you know, on to the next chapter. And, and again, uh, the relationship that forms between Faith and the dragon shapes so much of what follows um, that as I discovered more and more of Faith's story, you know, because again, I always knew, I knew justice and I knew how the war would go, but Faith was possibly the last thing I discovered all the way through and her interaction with the dragon alone shaped so many different things 
you know, uh, I ended up having to dig a whole lot into not only actual dragon mythology, but the history of dragons in fairy was a thing I needed to know to finish my story. And it ended up having so many big ramifications. So uh, that and the dragon turned out to be hilarious. So um, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, okay, well, then I have one more question for you. And that is, what are you reading now? Oh, uh, that's a, ended up being more complicated. I get um, a lot of... I, I made a stack. That's why I'm looking back. And I'm going to pull them... Um, a lot of times, if I get stuck, I'll decide it's because I'm not reading the right thing. Uh, because whether it's reading or watching movies, there's so many times when I'm trying to write something and I'll get stuck. I've never had writer's block where they talk about, I just can't write anything. But I've had a lot of times where I really need an answer to this question. I haven't figured out what I want to do. Um, and sometimes I'll be watching TV and they'll do something in TV and I'm like, oh, that's it, you know, or not that, but something else. But, or a lot of times I'll start reading a particular book because I'm looking for an inspiration in a particular field, which means I end up getting embroiled in like 14 different books. Um, so I'm rereading The Girl of Fire and Thorns because this was a fun book for me. Uh, Ray Carson did a, a fun thing where you start the book, you think it's one kind of thing. Um, she seems a little bit like a uh, kind of a shallow character that just wants to get married, and then her whole world blows up, and she ends up being much more interesting and complicated and growing. So you kind of think it's uh, a run-of-the-mill YA story, like, it was one of those I read the first chapter, and I'm like, oh, I know where this is going. And then she shattered every expectation I had. And I liked that. And I wanted to do some of that in, in Shadows. Um, so I, I had read this before and, and during. And uh, so a lot of times I'll reread things. Um, I've got a quiz book on Sherlock Holmes here. Um, a, uh, a Dean Kane compilation. Uh, he wrote uh, The Postman Always Rings Twice and uh, Double Indemnity, which are both big movies. Uh, I like his style. Um, he's got a nice, short, percussive style that's a lot of fun. Uh, and I'm almost always reading, while I'm writing Sherlock Holmes, I'm almost reading Sherlock Holmes or listening to an audio because you want to keep you know Watson's way of speaking in your head. Um, and uh, a book called The Kryptonite Kid. Um, that I read as a kid and wanted to reread again. Uh, I, I reread a lot. Sometimes, like, it's a comfort read. You know, I'll read a new book and read reread an old book, especially because uh, I'm a little bit older now, and there are times when I'll reread something that I read when I was 15, and I'll have virtually no... Like, it might as well be new, right? I remember 7% 7, 7 of it, and the rest of it is all new. Um, or... Or... I notice things I didn't notice in before. Like I think Gatsby, I reread every decade and it seems like a brand new book every time. Sure. Yeah, no, I so, definitely uh, have my books that I reread too. So I get it. My brother's a big rereader as well. Um, I do have, I lied to you one more question. <laughs> um, and actually I'm going to sneak in one more answer. Yes, if you'll let me, please go. Ahead. Um, 
I also feel uh, War for the Oaks shouldn't be should be mentioned here somewhere, not because um, I'm reading it now, but because I reread it all the time, and um, it's such a great book on the fairy, um, and there's a um, a couple characters. Uh, Avon Stoke is definitely a callback to a character in there uh, that I just adored. Uh, so I feel it needs you know some kind of credit. Yeah, no, that's very neat. Uh, well, I always love hearing what everybody's reading and what everybody's inspiration is. So that's great that you were able to find inspiration from another book and obviously change it enough so that it feels different and unique to your story, but that you drew inspiration from another piece of media is fun. And it reminds, actually, you had the said... weird thing... Oh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. The weird thing about a series that it took me so long to write is that it ended up being influenced by so many different things. Sure, yeah. Um, which was fun. Yeah, well, you had just said, too, a minute ago about how you would watch TV or you'd watch some other piece of media and, and be like, oh, not that, but something like that or something else completely different. And it reminds me of uh, something. A friend of mine reads tarot cards, which is very different, but you'll see why I bring her up in a second where she says, you know, sometimes these, when I read tarot cards, it sounds completely spot on, perfect to your life. And you're just like so mind blown that it could possibly be so spot on to your life. And sometimes when I read them, it sounds so completely off that you're like, no, that couldn't possibly be right because this, and then that gives you the answer you need because it's so far off from the truth that you're feeling internally. So it just reminded me of that aspect of not that, but something else completely different, but that made me think of that. Um, so That's actually a great analogy because I, I happen to love tarot cards. Oh, okay. Um, and and I, I think it's a paraphrase of um, Young that um, symbols are tools for the mind. You know, so, you know, you, you need to move something. You can't move with your hand. You know, you get a lever or a hammer. Um, even if you don't believe in tarot cards. Okay, so we don't think there's any predictive power in tarot cards whatsoever, but you can't lay out all those different symbols that make you ask all these interesting questions without getting some answers. Sure. Um, just, yeah, floating your brain past that many different symbols or levels of understanding is going to get some kind of result. Uh, and I feel like writing and reading is is the same way right like you know you read something and, and you get impacted and it, it affects a year later you'll be thinking well this character wouldn't do that you know even <laughs> if it's you know uh, a, a foolish character you know you'll you know like sure know. um um you know the 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 Fuka would never do this. I can't do that either. Batman right. would never do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like I, I feel like they influence you far beyond you know, the reading time, or at least yeah. the good ones. Absolutely. I completely agree. <laughs> okay, so now I have my for real final question for you. Um, and you've talked about, and obviously we've been all listening, all of us in the audience, um, to your book on audiobook and, and through the podcast. So you've got a very colorful cast of characters. If they were to make a movie out of your book do you know who you would have cast in the movie this is kind of a question and one another one of those questions that i've started asking all of our authors just because i'm so curious 
well, um, how long do you want me to go? Because uh, part of my outlining process, if I ever get stuck in a character, I will immediately think, okay, who am I basing it on? And then the next minute I'll think, who would play it in the movie? So I actually, in all my notes for all these characters, I have particular pictures of actors plugged into, you know, and not just, um, for instance, uh, dad, father, in the book, becomes a complicated question because dad has come... Uh, and, and I'm about to spoil some big end, big reveals in the end of the first book. So stop now, if you don't <laughs> want me to. D Dad turns out to have a very complicated history where he's actually from Fairy, has taken this 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 person's life in its entirety and shipped that person off to Fairy. So I end up having sort of two Dad characters. There's the Dad that got shipped off. And then there's the dad that is actually Justice's dad that, you know, doesn't really look like he looked, she thought he looked when he grew up. Anyway, so for instance, when I picked Viggo Mortensen, I have two different, very, very different pictures of Viggo Mortensen for each dad, you know, because one <laughs> looks, you know, I one I wanted to be kind of, you know, roughed up, but magical, but shipped off and, and sad, and I wanted the other to be kind of hopeful and just a little bit um uh glamorous you know uh with a hint of decay you know like so um uh i i really liked um oh uh i think it was uh l dakota that did the um the golden compass like i have a picture of her stuck in for justice then i changed my mind and then stuck her in for faith um i i, I mean I have a long list of, of 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 names. I can pull it up. I don't know that sure. I remember everybody. Yeah, if you'd like uh, to. Anything that's too long, we can always cut back. But And of course, a lot of them I decided and pulled a long time ago. Mm. Um, so some of them aren't particularly... Um, let's see if I can even recognize the, the picture. Oh, okay. So, of course, Kate Blanchett for uh, Martine Kazarik. Um, and I do this with a lot of books. Kate Blanchett always finds a way of working herself in. I, I think if you wanted uh, her and Tilda Swinton, you know, if you needed a role that's like, we need you to play a mailbox. I think those, you know, <laughs> those two people could do that. So they, they always ended up working their in. Um, Prudence was such a non, she's, she's just, she's one of the hidden sisters. And when she first appears, she's blatantly, aggressively nondescript so i have no picture for her whatsoever <laughs> because that didn't fit sure um oh i have a picture for joshua and i don't know who it is oh, no. so that's nobody let's see i'm sorry i went through so many lists uh i really <laughs> wanted uh benedict cumberbatch for uh benedict just okay because he kind of fit and then i ended up pulling him out and putting in, um, oh, I've lost his name. He just did the new Batman. Oh, uh, is it Robert Pattinson? Pattinson, Pattinson. Okay, yes, okay. Robert Pattinson, but a very young Robert Pattinson. Sure. Like the Robert Pattinson that we know today doesn't work. Sure. Um, yeah, so I got very, very specific. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I said El Dakota, I think, earlier. 
L. Fanning and Dakota Fanning is who I ended up casting as Justice and Faith. Ah, I see. Reversing him a couple times. I, I went on and on with this. I guess that's really all I had. It seemed like more in my head. No, but that is a decent amount. And L and Dakota Fanning is the... So which one's which? I assume L being younger would be Justice. The younger. Yeah, although I think I ended up um, finding a very younger picture of the older sister so i actually sw- switched them okay so dakota would I had the be... older playing the younger and the younger playing the older but it requires some some time travel to of get course. the versions i'm after you know <laughs> so of course yeah <laughs> that's so that's great. allowed right right time travel we can do time travel in hollywood now oh Absolutely. yeah movie magic is you'd be surprised what we can accomplish <laughs> there you go well, that's so great. Thank you so much for coming on with us and, and sharing all of this stuff, Christian. This has been so much fun. Oh, thank you. It was a lot of fun for me. And to our listeners at home, you can find Shadows Over London and Justice at Sea on our website, camcatbooks.com, in audiobook, ebook, and print formats. You can find CamCat Unwrapped on all major podcasting platforms or watch us on our YouTube channel. And make sure you follow us on social media at CamCatBooks. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and unwrapping another one of our books to live in with me. My name's Jess, and I'll see you guys next time here on CamCat Unwrapped.